Welcome to the Veterans Access Podcast, where it's our mission to catalyze VA engagement to support families and bring veterans all the way home. The Veterans Access Podcast assists veterans navigating the VA system with detailed guidance in order to obtain the benefits that you've earned. After two decades of war, our veterans and their families are challenged by an unprecedented strain on their mental, emotional, and physical health. And the VA is struggling to keep up with the demand for claims processing. So the UDT SEAL Association has sponsored this educational program to help you successfully engage at every step in your journey through the VA system. Our first series, The SEAL Advocate, Guiding Veterans to Their VA Benefits, was produced by Dr. Jeff Jennis, who is a former Navy SEAL officer and VA Raider, the Director of Outreach and Education, and a VSO for the UDT SEAL Association, as well as a chiropractic physician and acupuncturist. And it's also co-produced by me. My name is Stacey Whitcomb. I am a podcast producer, civilian, and acupuncturist who treats individuals recovering from service-acquired injuries, illnesses, and trauma in a highly specialized clinic that serves emergency responders. I want to share with you a few extremely important details before we launch into this episode. First of all, we will be talking a lot about the workbook, forms, VSO organizations, and other references. Those all can be found in the show notes or at veteransaccessproject.org. Again, that's veteransaccessproject.org. I also feel that it's really important to mention that if you are a veteran in crisis or concerned about one, please connect with the Veterans Crisis Line. There are qualified and caring responders that are available for confidential help, and many of them are veterans themselves. This service is private, free, and available 24-7. You can connect by calling 988 and selecting number one, or you can text 838-255. Lastly, I want to give my own personal heartfelt gratitude and personal thanks to you for your service. Thank you for the sacrifices that you've made for protecting us and defending our rights and for all of the burdens that you've carried. Now, on with the episode. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the series of podcasts produced by myself and my friend Jeff Janis for Veterans to Access Your Disability Benefits. Today is episode three of five. So as a quick recap, in the first episode, we covered the background and purpose of the VA and its compensation programs. In the second episode, we covered the 526EZ application form. Today is episode three, and we're going to explain how to navigate the VA examinations and how to file for additionally qualified programs. Next episode will be episode four, where we'll discuss the specifics about the appeals process. And lastly, in episode five, we're going to share special programs and considerations for reserve veterans, combat veterans, and severely disabled veterans programs. Uh, hey, Jeff, how are you doing today? Welcome back to the show. Hey, thank you so much, Stacey. I'm doing great. Awesome. So today we're talking about exams, right? Yeah, that's the first thing we're going to talk about. We got a lot to talk about for VA compensation and pension exams. That's what they're usually called. Sometimes they just abbreviate that down to C and P exams. So are you ready to tackle the exams? Sure. So we turned in the 21-526-EZ form. And after that, there's a process, an internal process to the Veteran Benefits Administration, and it's called development. 
they look back at the service treatment records, at all the information that you provided them. And then they determine if it's reasonably can be assumed that your disability or your injuries stemmed from your active duty service. If they find that that's true, then they schedule an exam so they can find out how bad the disability is for you and how much it is therefore affecting your work. Remember, it all ties back to lost wages. If you are being scheduled for a VA compensation and pension exam or CNP exam, that's usually a good thing because it means that the VA has seen the merits of your claim and now they want to know how much that disability is affecting you. Every item that you put on your claim form, they're going to address in some way. They're going to schedule exams for the items that they think are reasonably caused by your service. If they are some things that they think are not reasonably caused by your service, then they won't schedule exams, but they also won't make a decision until they get all of the medical information from the examiners on each and every condition that they feel they need to examine. Once they have all of that information back, then they will make a decision and they will inform you as to whether or not they granted service connection, which parts they denied, and if there are any other parts that they deferred, which means that they still need more information and they're going to pursue that information and then make a decision on it at a later time. It's also important to, to recognize that you don't get to schedule this exam. It's up to the VA whether or not they schedule an exam. And it's also up to them as to when they schedule it. And it's usually scheduled between one of three different contractors that they use for evaluation services. Additionally, they will attempt to schedule it within 50 miles of your home. For a specialist, they may have to extend that circumference out to 100 miles. The VA will actually pay your travel expenses to and from the appointment based on a mileage cost from your home of record. So any appointment that they make for you, they're going to send a certified letter to your home of record, which is the address that you have on file with the VA, and it should also match the one that you put on your claim form. If your address changes, you definitely need to alert the VA so that they can get information to you in a timely manner. If you have signed up with those contractors, they may also send you an email in order to coordinate uh, your appointment times and locations. I also just want to interject in here real quick, something that I learned from our last episode, and that is if you're homeless or your living situation is unstable, it's really important at this point to make sure that you're connected with a veteran service officer so that you have one more piece of being tied into the system and being able to communicate. So be sure yes. be sure you do that if your living situation is unstable. Yeah, that's a really great point, Stacey. Okay, what you got next? So it's also really important that if the VA schedules you an exam, that you go to that exam. If you need to reschedule it, there often is an opportunity to reschedule it one time, but if you have to reschedule it beyond that, usually they will cancel that exam and it will go back to the VA as basically as a no-show for you. And you don't want to no-show to your appointments because they need this information in order to properly adjudicate your claim. If you can't make it, you got to give them 48 hours notice or they'll still schedule you as a no-show. All of this, I should say, is in an effort to deliver timely benefits to veterans. They're not trying to be punitive, but if they can't get this information in a timely manner, then they just usually deny the claim. 
The other thing about exams is that they can request a male or a female examiner. And sometimes that matters if we're doing male or female reproductive systems, or if you're doing mental health, maybe a veteran has a preference for a male or a female practitioner, and you can definitely request that ahead of time before your appointment. One other thing that I would just like to mention is that there are some unscrupulous individuals out there that are performing exams for a fee. And I'm not saying that you wouldn't normally pay your doctor, but this is that you pay a fee and then you get a particular VA exam. And these exams are widely looked at as potentially fraudulent because most of them are done by telehealth and they basically just say whatever the practitioner thinks that the VA wants to hear. It's mostly just a waste of money and it biases the VA against your case. So I would, I would say that if you can get treatment by a VA provider, if you're within the VA healthcare system already, and if not, go to the scheduled VA exam with a VA examiner to get the most accurate information to the VA. By making a claim with the VA, there really shouldn't be any out-of-pocket costs. How long is this process? If this were me and I turned in all of my paperwork and I didn't hear anything back for four weeks, I would start getting antsy. How long should a veteran wait? Once the claim is turned in, you probably will get some notification that they've received your claim and that they're working on it. Then you pretty much just need to wait until they get through their process. And it varies based on the amount of things that are claimed and the evaluators that they have available. Also, it's based on the VA's backlog as to how quickly they are rating claims. In general, they estimate that it takes about three to four months to get a decision back on any particular claim. Okay. Thanks for that. So back to the exam. Tell us a little bit about what to expect with these exams. Sure. The VA initiates this exam process. And oftentimes when they schedule you for an exam in that certified letter that you're going to get, they'll send you some questions and a little questionnaire. None of the information that you fill out there should conflict with your original claim form. It should basically be the same information. Also, if there's any uh, additional medical information that you didn't submit with your original claim, you can bring it with you and give it to the doctor for them to consider, and they will enter it into the record for you. I think if this were me, I would just create a file, whether it's digital or paper, of the original disability form, and I would put that in there, and then I would use that language that I use to describe my challenges, use that same wording on all of the forms that I was filling out in the future. So I think I would hang on to everything that came through and just make copies of everything so that nothing's wildly outside of any parameters. It's all the same thing that you're saying over and over again. Yeah? Yes, I think that is exactly right. And there are some specific terms that the VA uses on those forms that you need to be aware of so that you know how to fill them out. Now, these are terms like repeated use, repeated use over time, ADL or activities of daily living, and flare-ups. Now, we're providing the definitions and instructions on how to properly fill out the form in the workbook. Also, the VBA has a moderately useful series of YouTube videos that go through each type of exam, you know, for example, a, a neurologic exam or a musculoskeletal exam. They're pretty superficial and general, and they pretty much have the same information in each one. And this series is called the VA 
C and P exams. Those VA videos are good, but they're saying it from the VA's perspective. And what we're explaining in this series is a little different. We're explaining how you can get all the accurate information to the VA so that you can have the rating decision that matches your condition. And that will allow you to get the benefit that most matches the level of disability that you have. What are some of the things that might happen during this exam? Yeah. So with exams, you can bring a loved one with you or you can have a chaperone in the room the same way that you can choose a male or female examiner. The evaluator is going to be capturing the information on something called a disability benefits questionnaire. The DBQs is the primary piece of information that the VA uses to rate particular disability. The VA rating schedule is the form that they use to actually come up with the individual disability ratings for an individual's condition. This form is a standardized form, and it's usually based on a body system or a particular condition, but the VA has many of them. Also, along those lines, is that even if you are providing a lot of private medical records, still, in order for the VA to rate it, they must have this information and that information must get transferred by the evaluator onto this DBQ so that then it's useful to the VA to evaluate it. So it's still very important. If Even if you've provided lots of documentation, that you still engage with the evaluator and provide that same information to them verbally during your appointment. So one of the biggest things I like to tell veterans about the exams is that we are trying to get the most accurate information to the exam. We're not trying to exaggerate information, but also we're not trying to minimize information. And that's something that most service members have been doing for their entire active duty service careers is usually minimizing any injuries or symptoms so that they can stay uh deployable or stay ready for their unit to do whatever that unit's mission is. I think that's pretty standard for a lot of people who, who who use their physical body for their job. Yes, I think so too. And the biggest thing is that now is the time to come clean with all of the symptoms that you've been feeling. So you show up to the appointment in your comfy clothes. What might they expect for the exam? It totally depends on what you're being examined for. If we're doing a musculoskeletal exam where they're going to examine maybe a injured shoulder or a knee, something like that, like you said, you definitely want to wear comfortable clothing so that you can move. Um, they're going to ask you probably some medical history questions. They're going to ask you some employment questions. They're going to ask you how this uh, injury affects your everyday life. And they might also ask you about previous treatments you've had for this condition. So they will try to create a, a, a complete picture of that particular condition or disability or illness. It should be noted that the examiners will not likely give you any information. They will not give you any treatment information. They will not give you any information about what their opinions are or what they're going to be relating to the VA. And you actually can only get that information if you request it directly from the VA. They're not there to treat you or be your practitioner. So and uh, there's a couple other things in general that I just wanted to point out. First, you should explain and show all of your symptoms. You want to mention when they started and how severe they are. And you should also include if there's any flare-ups that you experience or if you also experience any loss of use when 
you use your, maybe it's a, an extremity or your arm or your leg, and you use it repeatedly over time. And sometimes that can make symptoms worse. So anything that makes your symptoms worse, you should tell the examiner. So Jeff, with regards to like any specifics that people need to talk about during the exam, specifically like musculoskeletal, is there anything in particular that the veteran needs to make sure that the examiner notes or knows about? So for musculoskeletal exams, the examiner will often order x-rays either immediately following the exam or on a separate day and possibly at a separate location. The x-rays are mainly looking for any bone or joint changes, which would indicate arthritis. When we talk about anything that is musculoskeletal, which means that it's any kind of a muscle, joint, ligament injury, any type of bone injuries, the examiner is trying to find out what the range of motion is. And they also want to know if there's any pain. And they also separately want to know if there's any instability in that joint. What we need to point out to them is how much it hurts, where it hurts, and when it hurts. I also like to explain to people that they're trying to see how much of a normal range of motion the veteran can demonstrate. But pain is not part of a normal range of motion. So if you're moving your limb and they're asking you to demonstrate a range of motion, you should stop when you feel pain. Or if you're in constant pain, you should stop when you feel additional pain. And again, just stop and tell the examiner, I can't move past this point without additional pain. And that should be the range of motion that you demonstrate because that's the only one that's in quotations normal. But then they're also going to be doing it usually three times. That is not a challenge to go further each time. That is to determine if the range decreases with repeated use. So it's okay each time you perform that range of motion if it's slightly different. They're going to take the average of the three in order to determine which it is. But it's just important for our veterans, many of whom, you know, will respond to those kind of challenges, like do it again and again, as they think they have to like try to increase the range of motion. But remember, we don't want you to go into additional pain and we want you to stop where the range of motion becomes painful. So there's other types of pain as well. As you're fully aware of, Stacey, you could have pain in a local area, but then you could also have pain that radiates from that local area. And especially if veterans are claiming a neck or a low back problem, that they explain any pain that radiates from their neck and their low back into their arms or their legs. But not just pain, but also stuff like numbness and tingling, weakness, or even just a change in like sexual functioning, bladder problems those types of things too. So if you have a lower back problems and then you have those things as well, it's important to note those. Yes. It's definitely important to have the evaluator capture all of your symptoms and definitely included in those symptoms is any feelings of numbness, tingling, or weakness in your hands or feet or arms or legs. And then also any of those ancillary symptoms that you were mentioning for a genital urinary problem, all symptoms that you're experiencing for that particular condition. The other thing that I want you to understand is that if you feel that the examiner was combative or dismissive of you or your condition in any way, 
then you should immediately write that up after the appointment and submit that to the VA so that it can be considered with your claim. If you feel that there was any bias on the part of the examiner, or if there was any information that they did not look at or did not accept from you, you should definitely write to the VA and have that submitted either by a VSO or through the um, evidence intake center. So once people have had their exam and the condition is service-connected, will they have to be examined over and over to keep it service-connected? In general, once you've had your VA exam and you've been service-connected for a particular disability, the VA will not re-examine you, but sometimes you'll be scheduled for a re-examination based on certain legislative requirements. Some of the things that come to mind are the disability ratings that are temporarily given for joint replacements or for uh, cancer diagnosis have to be reevaluated at certain inter- intervals after that. They also could be conditions that are of unknown origin, but you think that they are related to your service or an exposure. Do you want the VA to re-examine those conditions? So let's talk about Let's talk about other ways that the 526EZ form can be used. We just finished talking about how to use the 526EZ form to file an original claim. And now we're going to talk about how to use the 526 form to file additional types of claims. But what we want you to know about this is that you follow the same procedure that you did with your original claim. So that information is done in the same way. And you can go back to episode two to see how we did all of that. Also, it's in the workbook, right? So follow along in the workbook on how to file those types of claims. Yeah. So the next thing I want to talk about is new claims, because even though we explain to people how to make the original claim, sometimes there's some things that happen later that they need to make a new claim. And this can be for any condition that wasn't on the original claim. So maybe you just found out that a particular condition was compensable by the VA from your VSO or from things that could be secondary to other conditions that are already service-connected. We're only claiming things that are related to your previous honorable active duty service. A service-connected disability has not manifested or you haven't noticed it when you made your original claim. For example, you might've hurt your back in the service And then you made your original claim, but your back wasn't bothering you at that time, so you didn't think to claim it. But maybe later your back starts to hurt and it's hurting again in the same spot that you had injured it while you were in the service on active duty and the symptoms become chronic. You know, they last more than six months. So this is a perfect example of a new claim that you should make to get the compensation you deserve for being injured while on active duty in the service. Just because you may have additional uh, claimable conditions that came up after you made your original claim and after you left the service. It is important to understand that not every healthcare concern that you ever have or that has happened to you since you left the service would be claimable with the VA. Each condition that you claim must relate to an injury or illness that you uh, received while on active duty, or it must be secondary to another service-connected disability. So what if somebody has a condition and it's already approved and they're getting compensation for it, but then time passes, we age, what happens if that becomes increasingly worse? Are they able to go back and address that with the VA? 
This is what we call a claim for increase. It also is sometimes called progression because the VA understands that there is going to be age-related progression of illnesses and injuries. So just like with your original claim, providing medical documentation from your providers that demonstrates the condition has worsened is key to having your claim approved for an increase. You should submit the treatment notes with your claim if they're from providers that are outside of the VA. That's certainly the quickest and easiest way to get that information to the VA is for you to provide it. You should also be sure to fill out VA form 214142, which is just a authorization to release information to the VA. And you can find that form in the workbook. And what they will do is they will schedule you for another VA exam, just like the ones we were talking about. You'll go to the examiner. He'll fill out a disability benefits questionnaire for the back body system. And then they will make a determination as to whether or not the rating that they initially issued for that condition should be increased. When you have an exam for an increase, be sure to be very clear to the examiner how your condition differs from when it was originally service-connected or how it has worsened. For instance, you might be taking more medication than you were originally to control symptoms. The symptoms that you are experiencing might be stronger or the symptoms might be more often, or the flare-ups might be more severe. And you might also need more medical care as a result of your worsening condition. Another example is that you're experiencing greater difficulty with activities of daily living than when you were first service-connected. Some examples might be preparing meals, um, bathing, maintaining your household. And just like Stacy said before, Filing a claim for any condition that was not on your original claim follows the same process. You'll use the same 526EZ form that you used for your original claim. When you do get to item 16, only list the conditions that are new or service-connected conditions that have increased in severity. Do not list all the other service-connected disabilities that have not changed. So are there any other programs that we need to talk about? Are we missing anything? Yes, there are a couple of programs that are listed in the instructions on the 526EZ that we should mention for our audience. One of them principally is special monthly compensation. In order to fill out the 526EZ for special monthly compensation, you need to fill out the form exactly as we described it in episode two. Special monthly compensation is for our most severely disabled veterans. Usually you have to be considered 100% disabled and you also need the assistance of another person because of your service-connected disabilities. The uh, aid and attendance benefits can also pay for a spouse if they are severely disabled. When you talk about special monthly compensation, there are many different categories based on the severity of the disability as well as the particular body system which is affected. To fill out the 526EZ for special monthly compensation, you fill out the form as described in episode two, but when you get to item 16, you write which service-connected disability requires the special monthly compensation. You need to reference a service-connected disability that's rated at 100%, and you either need the assistance of another person or you're actually or statutorily housebound. Those are two different legal uh determinations that the VA will make. 
There are additional forms that you will need to fill out. And so you should look for the additional forms in the workbook and you should definitely contact your VSO because these types of cases can get quite complicated and you don't want to miss a particular legal step. So what does statutorily housebound actually mean? Housebound means that you're either physically confined to your residence based on your service-connected disability, or if you're statutorily housebound, it means that you have one service-connected disability that's rated at 100%, and then you have additional disabilities that are rated combined at 60% or more. And that, if you're rated with that many conditions, the VA considers you to be statutorily housebound. Okay. So a spouse who is not a veteran, but is severely disabled can apply for special monthly compensation. That's true. If you are at least 30% disabled, according to the VA, then the VA will give you extra money for your dependents. And they will also then be able to qualify for aid and attendance if they needed it. And so you could be a 30% disabled veteran that doesn't need any aid and attendance and your spouse needs aid and attendance. You could qualify to get extra monthly payments because of their care. It would be paid to the veteran, but it's for a current spouse if they can qualify. And the criteria is usually that they're either blind in a nursing home or they require an additional person to care for them. Special monthly compensation can be fairly complex. So I recommend that somebody talk to a veteran service officer to complete that type of a claim. Can this be a transitional situation as well? Say somebody is severely injured and claimed 100% disabled and able to claim this, but yet they're going to get better. Yes, there are a couple situations where the VA will pay at 100% rate, which means that they're hopefully replacing all of lost income for certain conditions. Things that come to mind are if you needed a joint replacement and specifically like a knee or a hip they recognize that you're going to need some convalescence for several months after that period of time. So what they do is they issue a temporary 100% rating when you check into the hospital for your surgery, and they'll pay you at 100% usually for two to three months. And then they will schedule you for a VA exam. After they do that exam, they will see what residual injuries you have, and then they will pay you based on those residual injuries after the joint replacement. So that would be a, a real common temporary 100% rating. A another very common temporary 100% rating is for active cancers. If you are diagnosed with cancer and you are receiving active cancer treatment, then you will be paid at the 100% rate. Once that cancer goes into remission or is removed, then they will usually reduce it to a 0% rate, even though the cancer is still there, but it's not officially affecting you. So then it's still service-connected, but it's not compensable. So in order to fill out the 526EZ for a temporary 100%, again, you fill out the form as we described in episode two for the top part and all the demographic information. And then when you get to item 16, you identify which service-connected disability necessitates the additional treatment or possibly surgery and the convalescence afterward. And just as a note, you can claim this even after the surgery. So even after the fact, you can make a claim for a temporary 100% rating. Because they wouldn't think to do it before. 
they might not know that they can even do that. Okay. They might not, our veterans might not know that if they're having a knee replacement, that they're entitled to a temporary 100% and then convalescence for two to three months. Can they go back and get that? So in other words, if they had knee surgery and they were fully rehabilitated, can they go back and and make a claim for that? They can, but there's some time limits usually. It usually has to be within a year Mm -hmm. of the surgery. And it also would then be re-rated as the residuals post-surgery, which is something that they should do and what I would encourage veterans to do because if they had a knee condition, for example, and then they had to have their knee replaced, then the residual effects of their knee condition after the surgery are usually going to be worse. Okay. The residuals after the rehabilitation period are usually going to be worse? That doesn't make sense. Yeah. No, 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 it is. Like, like, let's say they were at a 10 to 20% rating for their knee, and then they had surgery, so they were a temporary 100%. Yep. Then they had the convalescence for three months after. Then they were examined by the VA again because it's uh, legislatively mandated. Then when they check the residuals for this new replaced knee, it's likely to be 30% or more. Okay, great. I'm glad that I went back and asked you that question because I wasn't understanding it, but now I, I understand. Thank you. Fantastic. I think we have one last program to talk about before we close this episode down. What, what, what have you got, Jeff? Well, I'd like to talk about a program that the VA has called Individual Unemployability. So if you're not quite 100% disabled for VA purposes, but you claim individual unemployability, you're basically saying that even though I'm not rated at 100% disabled, I am unable to work or my service-connected disabilities prevent substantially gainful employment. That's the real key term there. This program only applies if you're between 60 and 90% disabled already. And then if you qualify for this program, they will start paying you at the 100% rate. So it will mean some additional income to you. I think this program should only be used as an absolute last resort if you need to replace the income. The reason why I don't like it is in this one particular program, the VA will do income verification checks through the IRS, and they will verify that you are not making above a certain threshold of income. This is the only program that's like that, and I think that it limits veterans in terms of their mental capacity and their physical capacity and their motivation. I think it biases veterans against working, and I also don't like it because it's more invasive because the VA is then looking at their income In this particular program, you're saying that you can't work at all. And I just think that that's a negative motivation for everybody. And I don't think it's good. The one other thing that I was going to mention that the VA will pay for that is a very rare condition is an 1151 claim. And this you will definitely need to talk to a VSO about. But it's basically if the VA causes or aggravates any condition that you have, it's basically the way that they will compensate you and they will basically treat it as it's a, it's a service-connected disability, even though it's not quite service-connected, but that's the way that they make it right for any treatment errors that the VA make. So they cannot sue for malpractice, the VA hospitals or VA practitioners? Right. They, they can't sue them just the same way as active duty personnel can't sue the military for malpractice. So this is the compensation avenue 
to correct any VA mistakes and they'll pay for any injuries or exacerbations that they cause. Hey, Jeff, thanks for doing all this work. Hey, my pleasure. It's, re- it's really a pleasure. And I also just want to put a little shout out to the UDT SEAL Association and thank them for helping veterans get the information that they need so that they can make their claims with the VA in the most efficient and timely manner possible. All right. Till the next episode. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you, Stacey. We'll talk to you soon. I want to give a special thanks to the UDT SEAL Association for their generous support of this project. If you found this information helpful and would like to support the project, please consider making a donation to the UDT SEAL Association at udtseal.org forward slash donate. You can also find that link in the show notes. Lastly, please follow the podcast and share it with other veterans to help them in their journey through the VA.